1: be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I am grateful to be with you today. As you can tell, I'm here, but my voice isn't. Um, Welcome to allergy season in upstate New York. Uh, This is the best my voice has been in days um, and just really needed to get some episodes recorded for you. So my apologies for how I sound. I have a wonderful guest with us today, so we'll just focus on what he's saying um, and try to ignore my voice. This month, we are focusing on the dads, uh, and we have several amazing foster and adoptive dads lined up for you. But before we get to our first Uh, dad guest Well, he's not really our first dad guest but our next dad guest um, check out these important announcements Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their hope for the FASD Journey a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD diagnosed or not this faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group a monthly vip conversation and a private facebook group which includes a video devotional from natalie and sandra every saturday to register visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash f a s d and I've got some online workshops, as always, uh, coming up on, let's see, Wednesday, July 12th uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern. We will be having a free one-hour Lunch and Learn intro to FASD. I offer these monthly, so always be on the lookout for them, um, for yourself, for a family member, your child's teacher, babysitter, grandparent, whoever you think would benefit from an introduction to FASD, um, let them know about these free monthly workshops. Um, I will also be leading a three-hour deep dive into FASD using the FACETS Neural Behavioral Model. That will be on uh, July 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We offer certificates of completion for all of our workshops. And if you are a social worker licensed in New York State, we do offer CEUs as well. To register for these or any of our workshops, to check out the uh, workshops that are available that can be scheduled, you can visit our website, justicefororphansny.org and just click on training at the top of the page, scroll down through, you can see what's available, you can register. Uh, We've included a link to the website in the show notes, uh, so it makes it easy for you to go check it out. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode, and so other adoptive foster and kinship caregivers can easily find the show and be encouraged and equipped Two, So, I'm so excited. Today, we are continuing our dad episodes in honor of Father's Day. I annually focus on interviewing dads throughout the month of June. Our guest today is an adoptive dad of six kiddos adopted through foster care. Jonathan Reed is also the founder and director of Fostering Hope New England, a ministry empowering churches and individuals to care for children and families impacted by foster care. They have a dream of a day when zero children in foster care are waiting for a safe, supported family. Jonathan is also trained, a trained practitioner in trust-based relational intervention, TBRI. We're going to learn about all of it. Please welcome Jonathan Reed. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Sandra. Thank you so much for joining us today. I love the work of Fostering Hope, uh, what you're doing throughout New England. Um, And I understand that you and your wife, Virginia, is that right? Yes. You have fostered over 30 children, adopting six of them. So I would love to hear that part of your story. Would you share with us what led you and your wife to begin fostering?
0: Sure. And, and first, let me just thank you for having me on today. And thank you for the really good and important work that you're doing through your uh, organization, uh, not just in New York, but as I get to know more about you all around the country and the world. Uh, so it's, it's really inspiring. And I'm learning from you. So thank you. Thank um, you. So yeah, my wife and I uh, were married in 1997 and uh, we desired to have a good-sized family. Um, Our plan was that we would finish up some graduate school, transition to some ministry opportunities that were before us. And then when we thought Uh, the timing was right, we would begin to grow our family the traditional way. Uh, I don't remember a single conversation about foster care or adoption uh, as we were kind of just dreaming about what our life would look together. It just wasn't on our radar. Um, So then uh, the the plan seemed like a good plan until it didn't work. Uh, Several years after we decided in our wisdom that the time was right to grow our family the traditional way, our baby room was still empty. Uh, We were among the many, many couples who uh, are dealing with, in our case, unexplained infertility. And uh, that was not the script we had written for our lives. It was uh, hard, as you can imagine, for us. Um, And uh, in time, uh, which is kind of a story in and of itself, but in time, God graciously uh, strengthened our faith to trust his love for us, his wisdom, and what he allows and his purposes. And we were kind of left with, well, what next? And uh, that again was a a whole story that led to a lot of twists and turns as I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to. Um, But after a lot of prayer, counsel, many conversations, research, and quite honestly, a lot of reticence in my heart. I was the the reticent one um, to jump into the space. Uh, but God kind of broke through all that, and we eventually decided to grow our family by means of adoption out of the foster care system. So our original intent wasn't really foster care per se, but it was, hey, is there a child in our community who needs a home, and that's that's uh, let's let's pursue that. And so um, we had no idea that that decision would radically change both our own hearts in so many deep and profound ways, which is still happening but also the, the trajectory of our lives. Um, and so that was the adoption piece. And um, as kids began to come into our home, including our first, who's now our oldest son and he's 20, uh, he, he entered our family as a pre-adoptive legal risk placement at two years old. Um, as th- these kids began to come into our home, what had been still a pretty abstract reality to us became incredibly real and concrete. These, these were no longer kids in a statistical category. Um, they were real kids, right, with real names, real faces, real personalities. Um, they had real stories uh, unique to each one of them. Um, they had real needs we were discovering uh, across the spectrum. Uh, but they also had real futures, real potential. These were amazing kids. Um, they were real kids who really needed real love. And I think at the same time, um, we began to view them through the lens of our faith. Um, both my wife and I grew up in pretty traditional Christian settings where the it was normal for us to hear passionate advocacy for life inside the womb. That was kind of the standard position on that issue um, that, that was held in the churches we were part of. On the basis that that life had a sanctity of life rooted in it being an image bearer of God with dignity and value. And so as these kids began to come through our home, uh, the question that began to ring in our hearts was, well, what about these kids? When a child in the womb, who in our tradition we would hear passionate advocacy for as an image bearer of God, is then born into a family unable or for whatever reason, um, not not yeah, equipped to provide at least temporary care for this child. Does that same child lose any of its sanctity as an image bearer of God? Do they possess any less dignity or value? Are they any less worthy of our passionate advocacy and love and, and care? And it was really that in conjunction with just the 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 nearness of these precious kids that um began to break our hearts and and cause us personally to say, Hey, whatever we can do within our capacity, whatever that is, uh, we should do it. And so that's kind of how we went down the foster care path beyond just adoption. And as you said, over the years, we've had about 30 kids come through our home. Uh, and then six of them ended up joining our family uh, through adoption. So there's a long, uh, kind of explanation of, uh, the path that led us into fostering and adoption.
1: Well, I love it. And I love your heart, right? If we're pro-life, we really need to be pro-adoption, pro-stepping into that space, that messy space of foster care, right? And seeing how the Lord would use us. So I know you mentioned uh, the first child that came actually was your, you, you did adopt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously five more came because you adopted six. So tell us some of that story, how and when your kiddos came that you adopted and and the, that process.
0: Yeah. So when uh, our oldest son, we moved to a new state while he was still pre-adoptive. And so we had to go through the process of changing licenses and the interstate compact and all that. And uh, when that adoption was finalized, we thought, you know, Um, let's just do, we, our hearts were moving more towards foster care, but with was still a heart to adopt. And so let's just do foster care and see what happens. And, and so that's, that led to quite the journey. You know, some of our kids stayed for a long time and reunified, which obviously is always the goal of, of foster care. Um, and then others were short term. And in the midst of that, um, you know, five of them needed permanent homes and each one, is such a unique story. Um, some of them really interesting, some of them a little more standard. Um, one of them, for example, was the younger brother of a son who we had fostered for about two and a half years, and then he was reunited. And then a month after he was reunited, um, this son of ours was born and um, was a little bit out, out of the capacity of uh, the bio dad to care for him as well. And so we uh, received him temporarily and that turned into an adoption. And so we have a great relationship with his bio family and see them all the time. And, but it's kind of a unique dynamic there. Um, So I think several years in uh, after we had fostered quite a bit and we had three boys that we had adopted. So just to note, our oldest is 20 and then our five other children are between the ages of 13 and eight currently. So we have three boys and three girls and we had had mostly boys as placements and uh, just as this hour worked out. Um, and we kind of were done at three, but you know how the state can be. They, they love to find ways to get you to take, uh, you know, kids cause they is so great. And they knew we had a heart for a, a girl and there was a young girl, baby five months old who needed a home and, um so they asked us if we take her and we did so that became our fourth and then we were really done so we thought and um and then there was a sibling group uh two girls who needed a temporary home for like just a month while they were just on the cusp of reunification and um we were literally about to close our home but we said well we'll take these girls one last placement and that turned into 16 months and then they went home for about a year and then they came back into care. And the, the return was really, really traumatic. I mean, lots of harm and hospitalization and all that. And uh, we, we recognized that we really would need to be the, the safe home for those girls. We couldn't imagine them heading back out into maybe more trauma after all they'd experienced. So yeah, there we, six, we think we, we is it. Um, but it's been a joy and, uh, as is often said, it's been, you know, the hardest thing we've done, but also the most rewarding and the most life changing in what these incredible kids have brought into our life.
1: I love that. How, how old is everybody now? So yeah. you, your oldest is 20.
0: Yep. So I have a 13 year old son two eleven year, 11 uh, year old son and 11 year old daughter, and then a nine year old daughter and an eight year old daughter. Um, And we're kind of in birthday season, so we're all about to make a a jump here. Yeah, uh, yeah,
1: yeah, I never know how old anybody is anymore. I just remember, I know what year they were born, and after they turn a certain age, it's kind of like, you know, I know them until they're 21, because my oldest is 33, I think he's going to be 34, so um, he's a biological, but... That's just it. Once they reach a certain age, it's like i don't I don't know how old anybody is, <laughs> only the two that are still at home. There you go. So now, when our youngest uh, came home, we adopted him internationally. He had experienced the most trauma, um, was prenatally exposed to alcohol. That led my husband and I to we found Dr. Karen Purvis's book, The Connected Child. We actually went, we flew to Nashville, from New York to Nashville. Uh, when Dr. Purvis was still alive and did, uh, attended, an empowered to connect, um, so lots of lots of training we sought. Um, eventually, we became back then it was called Empowered to Connect parent trainers. We were doing that. You, I'm so thrilled, are a TBRI Trust Based Relational Intervention practitioner. So was where did that happen? Like, were you fostering and realized, uh-oh, we need some serious help here? Was it after the fact? Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So, and I, I share this with my oldest son's permission. Um, when, when he came, joined our family, uh, in one sense, we bonded really quickly. And it, the, the first few weeks were just amazing, um, getting to know this incredible kid and um, uh, integrating him into our family. But then as many of your listeners can relate to, um, we some unexpected to us at the time, and this was 18 years ago. And so, you know, there wasn't a lot of accessible knowledge about trauma-informed care, certainly in my world. Um, and so as some of these big emotions and challenging things began to emerge, we were, you know, kind of at a loss, confused, surprised, um, discouraged, and we tried to apply all of the traditional parental wisdom we thought we had accrued over the years. And of course we had no experience in our own home um, of raising children yet because he was our first. Uh, But we found that those methods didn't work too well. In fact, oftentimes they made things worse when he was in places of dysregulation. So we were at a loss and I never forget. And I, and I share this with my wife's permission um, several months in when we were standing And my son was having trouble. And my wife looked at me with tears and said, I don't know if I can do this. And it had nothing to do do with her love for this little boy. It was, do we have the tools and knowledge that we need to care for this this incredible kid and meet his needs? And as I was holding her in that moment, I was wondering the same thing. Um, And so we... You know, kept kind of going. And for years, kind of, you know, we learned some things, but there, like I said, there wasn't a lot of accessible tools out there. And uh, we had other kids in the home, but um, I'd say so, it was about seven years into our journey. Uh, I was going to an adoption conference and there was a pre-conference event called something like the Connected Child. And it was led by Dr. Karen Purvis, who I'd never really heard of before. And so I saw, I said, well, this sounds like something I could use. So I signed up and, and sat under her teaching. and I tell you what, as I sat under her teaching during that pre-conference event, I mean, I was blown away with all the things I just didn't know. I didn't even know about you know, adverse childhood experiences and how complex trauma affects uh, you know, a child's development and how that needs to affect how we care for them. Um, and I was filled with, to be honest with you, quite a bit of shame um as I thought about some of the ways probably I had inadvertently uh, harmed my child through some of the you know, approaches that I was using doing the best I, I knew how. But at the same time i was I was filled with hope for the first time that wow, there there are there are tools and resources that I didn't even know about. Um so that became kind of a turning point for us, a starting point. just as a family, we begin to, pursue in our own clumsy way, trying to be a trauma-informed caregiver, of course, read The Connected Child. There was no TBRI training. I don't think it was formally a thing then as a model yet. I think it was kind of emerging at that point in time. Um, and so fast forwarding to when we, um, but that that did make a big difference uh, in our parenting. And then fast forward to when we were founding Fostering Hope, which we'll get to in a moment. Um as we thought about this movement, I realized, wow, if we're going to call people into this, if we're going to call the Christian community to step in, in a serious way, in a sustainable way, it's got to be a trauma informed way. So I, I began by, um, I went through trauma competent caregiving with uh, trauma free world. Um, Dr. James was Yeah, amazing. she's great. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Learned so much from her. And she recommended to me and that training that, uh, I go to the TBRI practitioner um, route. And so that fall of 2017, we did that and began to apply it. And that of course, personally, but both going through that training and then starting to train it has made me such a better caregiver myself. Um, But then we began to offer those trainings as a organization in January of uh, 2018. And, amazed at the nerve it struck locally with the lack of accessible resources that were available to families, both within our, we got it primarily thinking it would be a a means for the churches and the the Christian community we were working with. Come to find out there are all kinds of friends in the broader community who felt a deep need for this kind of accessible, practical knowledge and tools. And so I'd say now when we offer trainings, probably – 60, 70% 60, 70% of our uh, participants are referred to us by just partnering community agencies, child welfare agencies, um, people in the broader community. And so that's been a great part of our work and I think it's made a big difference over the years. So we, I think we have about 10 people we've gotten tr- trained as practitioners now. We have that's four or five of staff. It's just part-time who do trainings with us.
1: Yeah, I love that. My Our story was very similar in that the first child that actually joined our family through adoption, she she was a kinship placement, so not even through foster care. So we had three biological kiddos. Thought we knew what we were doing as parents. She came in at age eight in 1999. We didn't know anything about anything. Didn't know, and you know, anything about childhood trauma, prenatal exposure, none of it. Um, and she was hard. It was difficult. It was a constant struggle. I always felt like she was just disobedient, defiant, all of the things, and then eventually we, we did adopt her, and then eventually we adopted internationally, and for, you know, God only knows why, he put three children, siblings internationally into our home, and really initially, it they just clicked into our family. It was like, there was craziness with a lot of food I had to prepare, and they had to learn the language, but there wasn't a lot of the behavioral stuff going on. So we we felt like, oh, this is, this is great. And then we went and went on and adopted, found out there was a younger sibling, traveled, brought him home. He was five, had spent all five of his years in an orphanage. Um, we eventually figured out he was prenatally exposed, has FAS, um, and it was that kiddo, the last one that came in where we realized we don't not have any idea what we're doing here. We don't have the tools for this. We need help. That's when I found uh, the connected child book, and then once I read that, I knew we were watching some videos that we had ordered of Dr. Purvis. And uh, like I said, we went on to we flew to Nashville from New York to sit under her training and in a conference, and just you know immersed ourselves in that in that huge impact. And we were hosting. When Empowered to Connect started doing this, the, the simulcast, we were hosting those in area churches. So, um, And then eventually, because Empowered to Connect was offering the training so that we could become parent trainers. So we did that under Ryan and Kayla North, who you may be familiar with. And uh, so we were doing that for a while. But when our boys became teenagers, our two youngest, that's when you know the train kind of started going off the track. And, and although there was great connection, they were bonding, we had attachment, we had all those things, and we had those tools, we realized, and part of it was COVID, because at this point, COVID was going on. And we knew there was, we're like, we're missing something. And that's when I decided, well, they have my, our boys have diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, but there were no resources, no training, Um, The the, the developmental pediatrician had diagnosed them and just basically said, focus on life skills, have a nice day. I went home and, you know, Googled it like we all do and, you know, read terrifying information online and decided that's not going to happen to us and just continued doing the connected parenting stuff, which was helping until it kind of wasn't. And that's when I took my deep dive into FASD. So Jonathan, are, do, have you had any of that experience with your kiddos? or any of them prenatally exposed that you know of? Have you encountered FASD?
0: So we, we've not had any formal diagnosis of FASD. I know there's some exposure to um, dr- drugs. And my assumption would be that mixed in there might be some alcohol as well. I think to be honest with you, this is an area that I'm being introduced to and exploring very recently in part through some conversations with you and exposure to your work and recognizing that this is uh, an under um, diagnosed and not very well understood uh, issue. So I'm beginning to wonder and expose myself to some resources to try to help us understand, you know, if that's something we might need to explore with a couple of our kids. Uh, And so i Thank you for you know your advocacy and, and work in this area.
1: Well, thank you, and yeah, let's stay connected on that because that's something we've become very passionate about and providing that for families. Yeah. Um, because I believe that that you know the TBRI vital resource for parents, and caregivers, and professionals, but so is the FASD a, a very integral, important part of that. Yeah, so I think, I think um,
0: with the TBRI, it's uh, it creates. You know, this there's practical strategies that work really well, of course, to deepen connection. But I think, you know, the principle of this category of hey, there's there's need underneath what's going on here. And you, right. you need to be really just committed to to figuring out that need and meeting it. And for so many of our kids, it is beliefs and and uh, you know, attachment based but where it's something other and deeper, that principle really drives you, in the case of FASD to say, Oh. Is this the need? And let's go down this path. And that might look a little different than just a straight TBRI intervention, but that principle kind of frees you yeah. to not get stuck on the behavior that we get so triggered by right. and stuck on, and other people do, or really to to try to enter into that underlying messiness and, and figure that out with them.
1: Yeah, that's the, the neurobehavioral model that I use marries, I believe, very nicely with tbri because it's taking into consideration that history um you know the trauma prenatal trauma and the impact it has on the brain Mm. and therefore we're seeing these behavioral symptoms but where is that coming from and how can we best support the child for success so um yeah they marry they marry greatly together so we could talk about that all day (laughs) long um you know i can but um i i really want to get to fostering hope. So mm-hmm. what led you to establish fostering hope?
0: Yeah. So when uh, kind of going back to when we started to have these kids come through our home and I began to, for the first time, really study the need and learn so much about the need of kids in the foster care system, how significant it was, how many kids were in the system in and out over the course of a year, how many were aging out, how many were waiting for adoption, how um, complex of a need it was. How local it was. These weren't kids out there somewhere. And these are our neighbors right in our community and how unmet it was. And that really struck a chord with me. I mean, you know, our country has 350 plus million people in it. So 400,000 kids in foster care is a lot for, e- especially when you think about each one as an individual person that matters, but that's a statistical drop in the bucket for a country our size that claims to really be progressive and care about people and all those kinds of things. So I thought, Man, that's just not right. And so my heart's kind of stirring over the need. Um, And then for the first time in my life, really, I'm practicing my Christian faith with this this issue front of mind. So I didn't grow up in a tradition where we thought a lot about um, how those types of cultural issues intersected with our faith. Um, I don't remember a single conversation about this in church growing up. So this was new to me. I kind of compare it to when you were when you're buying a new car and you settle on a car and suddenly you're seeing that car everywhere. You go, it's not that they weren't out there before, it's now you're thinking about the car and so now you're noticing it. And with me as I was, you know, reading scripture and practicing my faith, suddenly I'm just overwhelmed with the multiplicity of of biblical pathways that are leading to the same destination that that our faith as practicing Christians should compel us to be the kind of Christian community that cares about the vulnerable around us, including this biblical category of, of kids who, who need families temporarily or permanently. Um, in fact, I started to get excited thinking, wow, as much as as great as the need is, if the church would kind of reflect God's own heart uh, for these uh, amazing kids um, and live out of the grace that we have experienced. Of course, the the you know you know it, it the call to engage in this goes so far as to describe caring for kids who need families as one of the authenticating marks that the Christian community has experienced genuine repentance. Isaiah one, and is practicing authentic religion. James one. Of course, very familiar passages to people in this world. But to me, the underlying. Uh, driving uh, ethic behind that is, you know, God through Jesus entered into our place of deep need. He He moved toward us in our uh, brokenness in order to serve us and love us extravagantly at our, uh, at our greatest point of need. And so we who've experienced that kind of grace would be compelled to extend that same kind of grace to others, not as the saviors ourselves, but as those who are being uh, experiencing God's grace and want to extend that to others. And in extending it to others, by the way, we ourselves are continuing to experience that grace. So, all that to say, I could go on and on. I don't want to start preaching a sermon here. Um, as that began to stir in my heart, I began to get excited and I looked around hey, what's happening locally? And while I was encouraged by individual people who were doing foster care, there was really not a conversation happening in any kind of organized way to within the Christian community. This need exists. How can we uh, make a difference? And uh, I thought it must be a lack of vision, a lack of awareness, and a lack of a viable pathway. Like, how do we do this? We don't even know how to think about this. And so ultimately that led to uh, – founding Fostering Hope as a, a way of meeting that need.
1: Yeah. So tell us about what are the programs? What What do yeah. you do? You engage churches. So tell yeah. us all about the work.
0: Sure. So we exist uh, to really guide churches uh, and people into sustainable uh, service to the foster care community. Um, emphasis on sustainable. Um, and our vision we describe as Project Zero. It's this big, audacious dream of a day when zero children uh, impacted by foster care would be waiting for a safe, supported family to care for them. Ideally, as often as possible, that family turns out to be the child's family of origin through either preservation on the front end or reunification uh, in a safe, timely way. But in the meantime, uh, as kids enter care, are there safe, supported families uh, prepared to care for them uh, temporarily or permanently? Um, we, We believe it's unjust as a society, that we would at least temporarily remove a child from their family of origin because we deem that family to be at least temporarily unable to provide safe care for the child, but then say essentially to the child, but sorry, we don't have a safe family prepared for you and all the negative outcomes that that happen as a result of that. So we really want to, you know, we, we think it's right and just that we would flip that script. So instead of kids waiting for family, it's, it's families that are raised up willing and able, but but waiting. So the primary way we do that is by coming along alongside church communities to help them integrate uh, foster care into the ministry DNA of who they are as a church. Um, and then when multiple churches in a geographic region commit to that vision, we network those churches together for collaborative uh, learning, uh, uh, encouragement, and service together. So our operational vision is that one day throughout New England, every child welfare office, I think there's about 47 uh, in Southern New England, and then that's not touching the three Northern states, um, that every child welfare office would have a network of churches taking ownership of the local need, who are the kids in our community who need homes, how many are needed, who are the biological families who need support, who are the social workers who need encouragement. We're going to take ownership and enter into this space um, and uh, love and serve well um, locally and then connected to, of course, networks beyond themselves and part of the broader movement. Um, So we're excited about that. And uh, in the few years we've been at it, we're still the Young Emerging Org, but God's done some really wonderful things and uh, excited and very motivated to see what continues to happen in the days ahead.
1: Yeah, I love that. And you provide training because I know as through TBRI you're offering that to families.
0: Yep. Yep. So we do. So the heart of the work would be. As I said, helping churches think through what would it look like to take next steps towards this becoming a, a sustainable part of who we are. So three years from now, five years from now, we're still at it. And so we do. You know, we, we've learned so much from the broader uh, what we call ourselves a bridge org, right? We're bridging the church community to the needs in the social work community, and we've learned so much from bridge orgs around the country, from the Christian Alliance for Orphans or CAFO community. Um, and we certainly follow Jason Johnson's, who's a leader in the KFO movement, his kind of thinking uh, everyone can do something mentality. So a lot of our work would be helping churches establish multiple entry points so people can step into the foster care story in a way that aligns with their current gifting and capacity with hopes that as they step in anywhere, um, there's more It's being talked about more. It's becoming part of the culture and people take additional steps into uh, higher levels of engagement um, culturally. And so there's a lot of coaching, a lot of resourcing. We have a process called a CAP, Culture Action Plan, that guides a church through uh, strategic planning around, hey, the next 12, 24 months, what what are the most important next things for us to do? Um, And then in the midst of that, uh, we have a wraparound support model that's similar to some of the really good models that are happening uh, at bridge orgs around the country um, that we help churches establish for families. And then we do trauma TBRI trainings. And Then we have a version of trauma informed caregiving training that we call trauma wise church that helps churches um, prepare themselves to care for kids who might you know, be in their churches from histories of complex trauma.
1: Yeah. I love that. Cause that's a piece that's been lacking you know, so the parents are finally getting the training for for the trauma, but the churches, you know, Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders, not equipped, right? And when there's, yeah. especially when there's several kids coming in, um, our family has experienced that over the years. Uh, they just don't understand. They don't get it. So I love that you're equipping churches. That's great.
0: We tell our partners if if you feel that you are called to care about this community, which we agree you are then you really have a responsibility to step back and look at your church systems and structures, especially those that are intersecting with children and families and ask the question, are we ready for this? Are we safe for and supportive of both children who have experienced trauma and the families who are caring for them? Because you can, you know, one of the basic pillars of trauma informed organization is, um, uh, actively avoiding re-traumatization. And, you know, there's a lot of churches who have unintentionally created some of that re-traumatization, both in kids and in families who've ended up withdrawing because just because well-intentioned ministries don't have the knowledge, uh, to step in, in a, in a healthy way. So it's been good. Uh, there've been a good response, uh, to it. And thankfully the trauma-informed principles, do intersect so beautifully with the values of the Christian faith that focus so much on healthy relationship and um, and and whatnot. So
1: wonderful. So, what states are you doing this amazing work in?
0: So, our vision long term is New England wide, and we do you know here and there some consulting outside New England, but primarily it's New England wide. Um, our primary work for the past several years has been in Massachusetts, and then we have a presence in Rhode Island and Connecticut. So we're kind of well, we have connections in New Hampshire, Maine, and really nothing in Vermont. Sorry, those of you up in Vermont, we just haven't really connected up there yet. Um, so we have connections there, but our focus has been first Southern New England and especially Massachusetts. That's where the first amazing opportunity came to us, both on the child welfare side and in the church side. So we thought let's strategically really dig deep, prototype this, work out our model for scaling, and then kind of grow out from there. So uh, it's been wonderful um, and amazed at where we are compared to where we were just a few years ago with a worldwide pandemic thrown in <laughs> to boot.
1: Oh, yeah, that definitely became became an issue. So what impact have you had so far? Like, Do you know how many churches, how many families you have that you're working with?
0: Yeah, we're, we're we're working at getting better at metrics, but we we have, we're connected and have worked with well over a hundred churches, and um, we have about five solid network uh, that are kind of formal formally working together as churches around child welfare, and so our goal in the next ten years is that every child welfare office in Southern New England, this that would be forty seven, would have at least ten churches involved collaboratively serving them. So that'd be about you know about five hundred churches. Um, on a 10-year scale. And so, yeah, we've had, you know, on the TBRI side, well over 1,200 people uh, trained and exposed to TBRI trainings. We've had, uh, you know, about 150 or so foster adoptive families um, raised up within those churches. And uh, it's been amazing to see the response and the Uh, which should make sense, right? Because this is God's heart for the vulnerable. And so it would make sense that it's replicated within those of us who would say we practice that faith. But it's been inspiring to see uh, the Christian community locally really respond. Uh, And we owe it all to them. We want them to be the ones that are locally kind of front and center. And we serve to consult, help, support, and bridge um, so that they can be successful in what they do.
1: I love it. Love all that you're doing. Uh, you must have a website where our listeners can go check out and learn more.
0: Yeah, it's fosteringhope.org, and uh, there's a lot of fostering hopes out there around the country. And there's really good ones, and so but we we have the fosteringhope.org in our uh, social media, Facebook or Instagram is fosteringhope, n e the letter n e for New England, uh, those two letters, and you can find us there. Love to have you follow along.
1: Yeah, well, we'll definitely put a link in our show notes so folks can go right to your website. Um, but Jonathan, as we, as we wrap up, um, and I could talk to you forever, I'm sure. But um, you know, most of our listeners are foster, adoptive, kinship caregivers like you and I. Um, so would you would you kind of close us out with some encouraging words, um, especially for dads? This episode is actually going to air in early June. Um, it'll be. We'd like to focus on dads because it's Father's Day in June. Um, so, mm-hmm. anything on your heart that you could offer words of encouragement?
0: Yeah. First of all, I would say thank you for stepping into this story. Uh, you are making a difference, and I know as a foster dad myself, sometimes it's really hard, harder than we ever imagined. Sometimes we wonder, um, and uh, you are. And so, thank you for for what, the work you're doing, and those moments where maybe you wonder if you can keep going, and uh, if you are making a difference, uh, keep going, and don't overlook the work that God's doing in your own heart through it, because some of the greatest work God's doing in this story is uh, in our own lives. Uh, the second thing I would say uh, to you is, um, you know, press into community. Uh, I'm not saying this on a based on research, just anecdotally, in our experience, it seems like foster moms do a little bit better about engaging in support groups and getting with other foster moms and connecting. And sometimes for any number of reasons, um, perhaps that dads don't seem to press in, again, anecdotally. And so I would say, man, push against that. Uh, community, especially with other guys who get it, who are walking the journey with you can be so life-giving and it doesn't have to be complex. I mean, maybe in your world, you could start something as simple as, Hey, you know, a couple foster dads, let's get together the third Thursday of every month and have wings and whatever else you enjoy and just talk and laugh and share with each other, how things are going and encourage each other and and invite other people in and uh, see what comes of it. And that could be really Um, life-giving. for 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 you. So, uh, and then yeah, and then like I said, keep at it. Don't quit. Uh, who knows all the ways you're impacting uh, kids who've come through your home, um, and uh, you might never know the full extent of it. But uh, by faith, keep walking that path, and even when it's hard, just keep in mind how Jesus has done that for you, and uh, fueled by that kind of love, keep at it.
1: Mm, love that words of wisdom for sure. Jonathan, thank you so much for all that you're doing all throughout New England on behalf of children and families, and thank you so much for being on the show today.
0: Thank you, it's been a pleasure.
1: And thank you for listening today, for being patient with my voice, which thankfully, I think it held out, so that was great. Um, Thank you for listening to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I hope you were inspired. I know I was, Jonathan's story Uh, just of his families stepping into this space and adopting six children through foster care and then just having a heart to engage the church and starting uh, Fostering Hope in New England. Um, Just so excited about all the work that's going on there. Um, So I I hope you were inspired today. Uh, Be sure to check out our next episode with another amazing adoptive dad. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, In addition to inspiring you, we always like to equip you for your parenting journey. If you would like to learn more about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, how to apply the neurobehavioral model, how to accommodate your kiddos for success, you'll want to take advantage of our training Uh, coming up on July 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern, we have another free one-hour lunch and learn introduction to FASD. Again, I offer those monthly. You just have to be um, watching social media, watching our, our uh, website to find out about or listening to this podcast too to find out when those are coming up. Uh, also, uh, July 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, I will be leading a three-hour deep dive into FASD using the FACETS Neurobehavioral model, So it goes deeper than just the introduction that I do for the Lunch and Learn. We do offer certificates of completion for all of our workshops. And if you're a social worker licensed in New York, we do offer CEUs as well. To register for any of these workshops, to check out what we offer, go to our website, justicefororphansny.org, and click on the training tab. You'll see FASD in the drop-down. You'll go there and you'll find all of our resources. And again, there is a link in the show notes. We'll put a link to Fostering Hope New England in the show notes as well. Um, and as we even chatted here with Jonathan, who's a TBRI practitioner, I highly, highly, highly recommend if you have not had any of that kind of training, trauma training, especially the TBRI stuff, please Please seek that out. Read the Connected Child book by Dr. Karen Purvis. Great way to start. Um, I 150% believe every foster, adoptive, and kinship caregiver must be trauma informed. So the the uh, TBRI stuff, perfect for that. I highly recommend. That was a huge help. So my husband and I and our family, and also become FASD. Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. Aware and equipped, whether or not you know for sure if your kiddo that you're caring for was prenatally exposed to alcohol, um, it's there's a there's a disproportionate number of children in child welfare who have been and they are not diagnosed. It's not that easy to get a diagnosis actually, but. What we teach in that class and, and our FASC training will not only help your kiddo if they were prenatally exposed, but they'll help even if they weren't and there's just some other things going on. This training marries wonderfully, like I mentioned in the, in the conversation with Jonathan, wonderfully connects, works well, intersects with TBRI. It's invaluable training for parents and caregivers, so make sure that you check that out. Um, also, uh, remember our hope for the FASD Journey virtual support community. Uh, We are here to walk with you on your parenting journey. Uh, So make sure that you check that out as well. All of it's on our website. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss a single episode and let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know about it too. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. You can also find me, Sandra Flack, on both platforms as well. I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with with me today. I'm grateful that my voice held out to the very end. Thank you for your patience with that. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. And share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at
1: justicefororphansny.org.